0: Listeners, start your engines. detours episode 38 rob here on this episode lauren knight from this movie is fine joins us to talk about 1987's beverly hills cop 2 uh, which i had forgotten was directed by tony scott so a little bit of a connection to our our, the way we ended uh, 2022 on uh, the top gun and top gun maverick duology and then this uh this franchise beverly hills cop a lot of uh Similar team involved, which I think we mentioned at varying points, particularly on this episode. As always, you can find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, and other podcatchers, as well as CrookedTable.com. Go ahead and give us a rating and review wherever you're listening to this episode. For now, let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about 1987's Beverly Hills Cop 2.
1: Axel Foley is back. Who is he? I'd say he's a cop.
0: <laughs> this is a Detroit badge. What the hell are you doing in Beverly Hills? I'm going deep, 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 deep undercover. Back
1: where he doesn't
0: belong. Excuse me, we are the owners of this house? They're in Hawaii for a week while the construction's happening. I'm Axel Foley, Beverly Hills back inspector. You've stolen this house. How do you steal a house? It's my uncle's house. <laughs> Reunited with all his old buddies. What the hell's going on here? Who the hell are you? I'm Johnny Wishbone, psychic extraordinaire. If you need me, just think Johnny Wishbone and I come running. Lots and biddles. It's like kibbles and bits, but different. Oh, this is a big mistake, a big mistake. Would you lighten up and take some risks? This is definitely breaking the law. (laughs) Welcome to Franchise Detours where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode we are heading back to Beverly Hills, conveniently enough for 1987's Beverly Hills Cop 2 and I'm honored to welcome to the show Lauren Knight. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here.
0: So, tell people a little bit about who you are and about that movie is fine.
1: Oh, sure. Um so I spent 7 years in the film exhibition industry. And uh, as a result of that, launched a, a movie-themed podcast uh, with a friend of mine named Aaron Hudson. And uh, it's really just an excuse for us to get together and talk about movies. Um, and if people want to want to listen, then that's great too. Um, <laughs> but it really started with just my, my Twitter handle was that movie is fine. Because I find that a lot of movies that Film Twitter talks about, I don't love as much as they do, like, it's fine. And I think a lot of movies out there are fine and that's just fine. Like, I think we need to get away from the best movie ever made or worst movie ever made kind of dichotomy, which seems to be rampant on Twitter. Like, if it has even the slightest thing wrong, it's like the worst movie ever or, you know, vice versa. So I think a lot of movies are just fine. And so that's sort of where um, the podcast idea sprung up and we like to choose movies that we sometimes... Like I think it might be fine and he thinks it's more than fine or, you know, so at least we get a little bit of, of drama, you know, as, as we, we talk about, about films. But, um, but yeah, that's basically how that movie is fine. The podcast came about.
0: No, that that's always the right, I think, reason to start any podcast, but specifically a movie podcast. Cause there are so many, uh, yeah. just to be like, well, I just want to get together network with like-minded people and hang out and talk about movies that I either have seen and love or seen and hate or watching for the first time and then if people listen great otherwise I'm having fun and I'm making friends on social media and like connecting with people and stuff so that's that's kind of where I where uh, I came from as well and I wanted to ask you about that movie is fine and you sort of explained it because you can look at that two ways you're like eh, all these movies are fine or you like like you're not unimpressed by anything or that you're that you are just, you know, even, I feel like even a bad movie, there's some things to enjoy from it. Like, usually I like, I'm not really the type of person to, to sort of indulge in the negativity when it comes to movies. Like, even if a movie is bad, I'll be like, oh, but the score was cool. Or like this performance, whatever. So like, I feel like there is usually something to enjoy, even in a movie, if a movie doesn't work. And I feel like that, that sounds to me like the new sort of nuanced conversation that you're trying to get to is that, Well, instead, let's break it down, what works, what doesn't, and, like, talk about why, as opposed to just going straight to, you know, hyperbole.
1: Exactly. And, I mean, we also stress every time on our podcast that if we, if we, if one of us or both of us think that a movie is less than fine, that doesn't mean it's not worth seeing. Right. Like, we believe every movie is worth seeing and that every movie, almost every movie, is redeemable in some way. Now, sometimes like, the redemption isn't enough to bump it higher, you know, into, like, that's fine category or territory. Um, Yeah. But, yeah, but we, we really want to stress it. Just because one of us might think a movie is less than fine, that doesn't mean that it isn't worth your time. Because one of us might have gotten something else completely different out of it. And movies are just amazing. And we just, Aaron and I just love them. Um, and so it takes a lot for me to kind of think a movie is less than fine. like i i I like I said, I watch a lot of movies that I think are fine, and that's yeah. I think that's okay,
0: <laughs> yeah, no. and and because it's so subjective, that's the fun part is that you you yeah, I feel like even if I don't love a movie, like I have a better appreciation for it after I talk it through on an epi- on an episode like this. uh, mm-hmm. there's been a bunch of episodes where someone brings a movie. i I for example I um as a teenager I saw the Big Lebowski and I thought it was I thought it was fine but I didn't connect to it I saw it a little later on and it's like okay I get it and then I rewatched it for an episode of uh, our sister show Close Watch and a friend of mine came on the show to talk about it and by the end of it I was like yeah this movie rules you're right <laughs> maybe I should uh, there's like a, a um the church like a, a Dudist church online and I was like this, this you know talking it through with her I'm like I think you should become a Dudist priest like this is this is a cool thing. Like I, I, I got on board the uh, the vibe of that film just by talking it through with, with my friends. So I think that's that's yeah, that's definitely a good way to go about it. Speaking of movies that are less than fine, Eddie Murphy has made a lot of them over the <laughs> years. Um, so that's a perfect yeah. that's a perfect, perfect segue. Uh, what is your what is your uh, history and sort of connection to Eddie Murphy as a, a uh, as a movie star as a as a screen presence?
1: Um, so I was born in the mid '80s, but really, you know, was a kid of the '90s. You know what I mean? Right. Um, my parents—I knew about Eddie Murphy because of my parents, and you know, they had watched him on Saturday Night Live. However, I was never allowed to watch any of his stand-up uh, when I was younger, because you know, like Eddie Murphy's raw, right? So I was aware that he did stand-up, but I was aware that I, but I was, you know, not allowed to watch it. Um, I think the very first uh Eddie Murphy movie I saw like I was I was looking at at you know his IMDB and stuff and um pop-up video if you remember vh1's pop-up oh, video yeah. is where I think I learned about like Eddie Murphy the singer um
0: was but, it party all the time or was it one of his it was got it was party all the time Jackson and,
1: yeah yeah, it was party all the time and I'm just looking at all of these um. These movies, and I think the Nutty Professor, yeah, is the first Eddie Murphy movie that I ever saw because it was the first one that wasn't rated R, Um yeah. or even PG thirteen. Like I think it was just P, maybe it's PG thirteen. I don't remember now, but came out in ninety six, so I would have been eleven, so that would have been like my first Eddie Murphy movie, and then of course I love Disney. So like at the time I loved Disney. There's a whole, I have a love hate relationship with Disney now, but Mulan, you know, and then obviously Dr. Doolittle. I remember seeing Dr. Doolittle with my mom in theaters. So I started with kind of more the, the family friendly Eddie Murphy, just simply because of where I, you know, how I was raised and what year I was born in, you know?
0: (laughs) No, I was, I was born in 83. So I had, I think I saw like, I probably saw some of his earlier stuff. Uh, like Trading Places and things like that, because I I watched a lot of those movies when I was like, I don't know, 10, 12, whatever. Just kind of, my, my parents were totally fine with violence and language, but if there was, you know, if there was any nudity whatsoever, that was there, like, covering my eyes for, you know, the, the sex scene in The Terminator. But if he goes and blows people yes. away, that's totally fine. Um, <laughs> thinking back, I'm like, I don't know if that... I think you got it a little mixed up, but um,
1: I know yeah. I, my parents were similar, but I didn't. They didn't love the language. They didn't really want, or my mom rather, my dad was like didn't care, but right. um, my mom was, you know, very Catholic, and uh, it was inappropriate for me. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, but so so I I also was big, and the Nutty Professor was a big one for me as well. Uh, yeah, and then I. I, so I've seen most of his like 80s, early 90s run, but it was definitely, you know, probably in my in the, my mid teens and such. Uh, so go, this is this one I hadn't seen in a long time. So when did you discover the Beverly Hills Cop films? And uh, I, you know, and what were your initial thoughts on the, the character of Axel Foley as introduced in the original film?
1: So I have sort of been an interesting – I don't know if people are then going to like shut off this podcast or not, so I apologize in advance. I knew all about the Beverly Hills Cop uh, franchise just because of working in a video store in my high school and college years and just being like pop culture savvy. Like, of course, I know who Eddie Murphy is and all yeah. that. I literally did not – have not seen a single Beverly Hills Cop movie until this year. Okay. And I'm well, in my mid-30s. What was the, what
0: was the, what was the impetus to to, to- – to go back and and uh, catch up,
1: um, I have been very heavy, honestly, ever since the the pandemic and lockdown. I've been very much into uh, action movies. They don't have to be action comedies, but a lot of a lot of times they kind of go hand in hand. Um, I during the pandemic and stuff, I just wanted to see stuff explode and and gunplay and bombs, and so I, I ended up watching a lot of like Jean-Claude Van Damme and Sylvester Stallone movies and everything that right. I, I had never seen or that I was then revisiting. Um, and then this year, uh, it was sort of a continuation of the same. I couldn't really focus on heavy dramas and, and you know, being uh, unemployed essentially since, since April. You know, I wasn't really into like art house <laughs> films. Right. well, yeah. And I was like, here's a great chance to catch up because people couldn't believe that I hadn't seen Beverly Hills Cop. And that I hadn't seen Forty Eight Hours, um, so I, I watched all of them recently. I watched all the Beverly Hills Cops, and I watched both um, Forty Eight Hours films. And only like last holiday season did I finally watch Trading Places, um, even though that's a movie my dad had been telling me about for years, um, but I never, I never actually watched it until like last Christmas.
0: Did that change the way your your sort of perception of on Eddie Murphy? Now that you're seeing. Pure, unadulterated Eddie Murphy as his as he broke into sort of A list movie stardom.
1: Yeah, I've really been enjoying the journey, and I actually want to catch up. I know, um, like the golden people, you know, have like the Golden Child, um, right. and and people have said that you know uh, the Vampire in Brooklyn is underrated. Uh, so I, I I'm looking forward to to catching up with those. Um, I have seen coming to America probably five or six years ago. And that movie absolutely holds up and is still one of the funniest movies I think ever made, to be honest.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think most people would, would probably put that easily in Eddie Murphy's sort of top five. He was, uh, yeah. I think, if if uh, 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop were his breakthrough movies, coming to America is like, I think him at, at the height of his powers, essentially, yes. as a movie store. Complete sort of creative control, playing multiple characters, like his... You, his voice is so present in that film, and I feel like speaking of that, I feel like his voice is way more prevalent in Beverly Hills cop Two than it is in the first film, and you can see that right off the gate because he's got a story credit on the second one here uh and yeah. I think you can you can feel like his sort of stand up persona leaning like bleeding into Axel Foley a lot more heavily here,
1: yeah, I saw that when I was doing um some research that it's the very first it's his very first uh story credit. It says uh I found that this is the first film that Eddie Murphy wrote or co-wrote. And there are a lot more um there are a lot of like improv stuff as well, especially between him and Judge Reinhold. Um there was definitely some improving that made it into the final cut of the film. So I think I think the his star power, like he was on the rise and Beverly Hills Cop was so successful and obviously it was just after 48 Hours and Trading Places that I think he he could sort of write his own ticket in a way, at least when it came to, you know, the sequel.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think people nowadays, like the, the perception of what a sequel is, is so different because back in the day, this is coming three years after the uh, the original film, back in the day, a sequel was just like, let's, let's do that. Let's change like 10 to 20% of the details, but have it essentially be the same. And it was sort of a rinse and repeat kind of uh, approach to the storytelling. You know, now we're in franchise building and interconnected universes and everything. As we're recording this, it's the, you know, we're just past the the opening weekend of Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, where everything is, is building towards stuff and post-credit scenes and all of that. Back in the right. day, I think studios were just like, if we make... If we make our money back, we're fine. Like, there was, I feel like, an understanding that it probably wasn't going to be as good, that it probably wasn't going to be as successful. They're just, like, riding the coattails of goodwill of an original film until it sort of petered out, basically.
1: And I think... I'm looking at the years, and I'm trying to think also based on, like, 60s and 70s. The the sequel was a big thing in the 80s, if I'm remembering correctly anyway. So, like capitalizing on Beverly Hills Cop and 48 Hours and, you know, those were in the 80s and another 48 Hours was 1990. But to me, that's late 80s anyway, you right. know, especially when they made it. So um sequels were definitely like a... I don't necessarily want to say like new thing, but they were maybe like at their peak in mm-hmm. general. Um, or at least... I don't know. Because you had... Although you had a bunch of Rambos, you had a bunch of Rockies, you had, you know, Predator 1, Predator 2. So it's, it seems like that was sort of the start of the machine yeah. <laughs> of, of, of Hollywood, maybe.
0: No, um, if, if uh, Jaws and Star Wars kind of created the modern blockbuster mm-hmm. in, the, in the 80s and uh, in the mid to late 80s, movies like Beverly Hills Cop, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, which is like, oh, we could just sign a star and just do as many of these as possible while they're able. And now I think you don't see that as much, at least it's not often a given in the same way, with the exception of something like Mission Impossible where Tom Cruise has been playing, making those movies, playing that character for like 30 years now, uh, and we're approaching seven and eight. Uh, yes, you, you I don't can't get...
1: wait personally. Oh, I
0: love those movies so much. I, I want to cover them on this show at some point. But because of the, what you're saying, the prevalence of sequels, a lot of the movies I've covered on this podcast have been 80s, 90s, you know, because I, I think prior to, like you were saying, the big action comedy boom of the 80s, I yeah. think it's it's mostly horror movies that did that. And they were just considered cash-ins. Like, the production value was always less. It was usually made cheaper. Uh, here, the budget is doubled from, like, I think, 13 for the first film to 27. And okay. it didn't make nearly, you know, it didn't make as much money as the original film, but it got pretty close, it made two hundred and seventy six million worldwide so it it turned a nice profit and this is not only you know Eddie Murphy coming off of the original film and sort of you know uh, I think delirious or raw raw I think was the same year eighty seven and uh this was Tony Scott's follow up to Top Gun
1: speaking I was just about of, to say <laughs> of Tom yeah. Cruise
0: and everything yeah
1: I was just about to say, and the fact that it was helmed by Tony Scott you know is is such a huge a huge deal and was really funny to me because I I had seen a couple like Tony Scott movies recently that I hadn't seen and didn't realize that they were necessarily Tony Scott movies until the credits in the beginning kind of thing you know like oh I didn't know Tony's and that was that was my reaction to Beverly Hills Cop 2 was credits were rolling on the screen and it was like directed by Tony Scott I was like what I had zero idea zero idea (laughs)
0: <laughs> no, until I was getting ready to do this mega series, I, I for I had forgotten that as well because it's you know he he had such a specific sort of style that feels sort of you know contradictory to to the Beverly Hills Cop movies in a certain way. I think here it works pretty much as far as elevating the the action. I think you can tell right from the beginning of this movie, like the action is a little more intense, it's a little more visceral, it's a little more energetic. I feel like in the first one. It's definitely much more of a showcase for Eddie Murphy than it is a credible action film. I think this one definitely ups the ante in that department.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And I think that's partly why Tony Scott was, was chosen um, in addition to, you know, the success of Top Gun, which is an action movie, but in a different sort of way, right?
0: You right. know,
1: so um, yeah, it was, but it, it definitely surprised me because I had no idea that Tony Scott had directed it
0: um speaking of things that like i said earlier this movie leans in on eddie murphy improv and and basically the you know because the moments people responded to in the first film were him sort of developing a character going into a situation and sort of taking it over Fer- ferris bueller style um just coming in and be <laughs> like i'm the sausage king of uh, i forget what he says," um but i think in this movie you see that constantly like to the point that if you did a drinking game, every time he makes up a new scenario, you'd be messed up like halfway through this movie because it's just constant riffing. It's like 80% of this movie is just him uh, he's Johnny Wishbone and then he's you know he's the building inspector for that for that you know the big Beverly Hills Mansion and all of that. Did, did that comedy work for you? In general, the fact that it leaned so much more on Eddie's sort of riffing? And in general, this being an 80s movie, how has the comedy aged? Because there was definitely some undercurrents of you know datedness in this film.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I look at, at movies, especially ones from the eighties and nineties and even early two thousands, I don't, I don't let that prevent me right from enjoying a film or even viewing it as more than fine if like overall the film is. I know there, I know that there are some people, and you know, we're both on film Twitter that you know, oh my gosh, this movie has aged so poorly and it's offensive and, you know, this and that. And I think it's okay okay to know that that's not okay, right? You're not watching it and you're like, oh, this is like a totally acceptable joke. You know it's not okay. Um, But we're willing to sort of and again, not okay, but we're willing to sort of forgive it for the, the Put time. It in context. Yeah. Yeah, like and the like the, the time of that, that it was. And of course, again, never okay. But it doesn't ruin, I don't let it ruin a movie for me if there are yeah. jokes that fall flat. But I love talking, I, I love the the different personas that he takes. And in fact, sitting here like talking to you, it made me think a lot of Fletch. Um yeah. with, with Chevy Absolutely. Chase, which I'd never seen until this year, also. Um, I haven't seen the sequel, and I'm looking forward to the to the John Hamm, you know, third installment, so to speak. But he the the all the different personas that that Chevy takes on in Fletch, I loved and found hilarious. And I think that's what I definitely liked more of in, in Beverly Hills Cop 2. So for me, it it worked. I think that type of humor when when it works is hilarious like I don't yeah. know I like I wish I could pretend to be someone else right like go go somewhere and just but I I can't you have to stick with it right you have to commit to the bit and that's Absolutely. something that Eddie always does is Eddie always commits to the bit even in his lesser lesser quality less than fine films like he he commits to the bit
0: yeah, it's a, it's a testament to his charisma as a performer, and also like you were saying, like he comes in with so much swagger and so much bravado in in these scenes, you know, taking over again. Like I said, the the building inspector one which is the one that really stands out to me because <laughs> he weasels his way into a, like a free mansion for the, <laughs> the few days or whatever that he's in Beverly Hills, which is. is you know, obviously, a moral gray area for a police officer, as Taggart and, and Billy point out.
1: Yeah, obviously. <laughs> uh,
0: but this movie also, I think, grapples with that a little bit, where he's like, "Yeah, you know, I, I wasn't always a cop," and it sort of gives us our first hints that, at, uh, you know, he he has he had a little bit of a checkered past, and he puts it to good use in his uh, in his day job, I think. And and yeah, it's um, I think it I think it works, and the reason you know, obviously, I agree with you 100 percent on. On the comedy, if something in there is dated, I don't necessarily ding in the movie, but it also I, it does make it feel somewhat less timeless because it, it is sort of placating to the you know, the politics of the age or whatever the gender dynamic. Right. Uh, and I, and it was weird for for this one. I noticed the difference is that this one had more of an undercurrent of sort of misogyny, particularly with the Bridget Nielsen character. And. Yeah. Uh, the first one had like a couple more homophobic, like stereotype things. But other than that, like, I feel like this one doubled down on on that kind of humor more so. And, but that doesn't mean, you know, that's not me criticizing the movie, but it's interesting to watch it in a modern lens. Be like, huh, never noticed that before. Now it's really sticking out, um, you know. But when I started the show, I started, the first episode I did was on uh, the Ace Ventura films. And boy, <laughs> comedies that have not <laughs> aged well. Uh yeah. but an Ace Ventura Pet Detective, still a huge movie uh for me when I when I was 11 and saw that and yeah. Jim Carrey fan for life. And you know, uh I, I love that character and 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 everything doesn't mean I stand by uh where that third act goes or or the representation therein. But uh but yeah, I think that's it's always in evaluating these older movies, particularly comedies, I think it's always interesting to sort of pinpoint, like, oh okay, so. Then that was cool. Now not so much. Eh. Okay. I, I'll look past it.
1: And I, I think something that I also that that also comes into play for me is when I'm watching any type of movie. It doesn't have to be like action or anything. Is is the joke or is the overall message or is is it mean spirited? Right. And I don't think the jokes in Beverly Hills Cop Two, while some of them are dated are mean spirited. I don't think the jokes punch down. And I think I think, you know, whereas I I believe the opposite for the Ace Ventura, you know, for Ace Ventura pet detective. Yes, like Yes, absolutely. Yes, that I saw that movie in theaters. You know, and I, you know, I I quote that movie. It's just it's so it's such a part of pop culture if you're of a certain age. Yeah. But it's it's cringy to the point where it's like, how was that ever okay? And it right. is very like degrading or demeaning. And I don't, I don't view Beverly Hills cop to be, to, to be that. Right. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. It, it's not demonizing any particular group, uh, in the way that in the, yeah, in the way that we're picking on Ace Ventura: Pet Detective now, but in the way that <laughs> that, that movie yeah. does with the trans community, uh, but it, it, it's it's also worth mentioning too because in recent years Eddie Murphy has even been like yeah I see some of the stuff I said in in my stand up set in delirious or raw and I'm like whoa, I can't believe I said that and he's even he's like but you know I was a kid and that's that's what I said and that was you know it was a different time or whatever and, so and
1: there's a different time and there's a lot of 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 race you know relations when it comes to you know being black and gay and like there's there's a, there's just a right. lot there to unpack if you, you know, if you're like a black man in the black community or, you know, a black gay man. So, I think I I'm happy to hear that he realizes like probably, you know, like it wasn't okay what yeah. I said. Like he's not really doubling down like some other comedians mm-hmm. have been these days, you know, he's yep. at least kind of owning up to it. And I think I think that's important and that's that's growth. And I, I respect him for it, for sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, like we were saying, this movie, uh, being a sequel, very similar setup to the original film. Some fr- a friend of uh, Axel's gets shot. He comes running to Beverly Hills to investigate. Uh, how does this, how do, does this film feel like enough has changed from the first one? To warrant the revisit, or is it feels like so much of a rehash that you're just, you know, is this movie fine, or or does does it transcend, <laughs> like does it does it I guess justify its own existence, even though the story it's telling feels almost at times beat for beat to the point that, again, I hadn't seen this movie in a long time. I've seen all three of these, but like years ago, uh, particularly the sequels, and when at the end when uh, Bridget Nielsen's Carla Fry gets shot. I was like, "Oh, it's gonna be Taggart because in the first one it was Bogail, who's like, "Oh, Axel, I don't agree with your methods, but I'll save you at the last second kind of thing. It's essentially the exact same beat. does does it does it doesn't do enough to stand on its own, I guess?
1: Okay. So here's the thing <laughs> i I rated this movie as more than fine. Um, and I know that when you reached out to me, you, you said, no one has rated this film as high as you have that Pretty you've much. noticed. <laughs> um, and I rated it four out of five stars. I love heist movies, first of all. Mm-hmm. So this was, uh, a heist movie. The alphabet was it alphabet murders, alphabet killers. Yeah.
0: Alphabet bandit alphabet or something. Alphabet, like but, yeah, yeah.
1: The alphabet something. Um, so it was, it was a heist movie to me it upped the comedy like the the first movie was establishing was establishing him as a character right and establishing like his his unorthodox skill set yeah but i thought he really came into his own and really this one was a lot of fun and listen you know we talking about top gun top gun maverick is basically the same yes, film it is. as top gun but better. And while I won't right. say that Beverly Hills Cop 2 is better than Beverly Hills Cop, I won't. I won't say that. But I think it gave me everything that I was looking for. I like uh, Brigitte Nilsson, uh, which is funny because of the whole like Sylvester Stallone-Cobra connection to Beverly Hills Absolutely. Cop and stuff, which is funny. And there are references in there. But um, to me, the comedy works. I thought the plot works. I did think it was weird that Bogomil is not actually in... I mean, he basically gets like, I, you know, iced out, like he gets shot and then he's in the hospital. Yeah. And I did learn that that's because he, he was actually supposed to be in the film more, but he was filming RoboCop at the same time. And so like his schedule was, you know, heavier for RoboCop. And so they ended up having to kind of just put him in a hospital bed um, <laughs> for the whole movie, which explains why he's like not in it. <laughs> Uh, which I thought was interesting, and at least makes sense now because yeah. that part is a little I, bit kind of weird.
0: <laughs> I completely spaced on that—the fact that this came out the same year as RoboCop. That's true.
1: Yeah, so it's that they it, would it, it, have been
0: filming around the same time because Ronnie yeah. Cox was on a real streak there between the Beverly Hills Cop movies, RoboCop, a couple of years later, Total Recall, and yeah, he was yeah he was, yeah, he was really uh, an action star not not the the star of the action, but like an action villain slash mentor character in those films.
1: Yeah, so that's why he's not in it very much. But yes, for me, I think the comedy works. I think, you know, they 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 crank it up more. Like you said, they do more of the like impersonations and like every every person he meets, he's or every scene like he's a different he's a different character. Um the Gun Club where he like throws water on his face and like takes yeah. the bag of vitamins from uh uh was it Rose yeah, uh, yeah,
0: Rosewood.
1: Yeah, yeah. Ro- Rosewood. Um, is I don't know why I find that whole exchange hilarious, and then he gets money from her, like yeah. he's a cop, but like she still pays him, and just I don't know. It all it it worked for me, and and sometimes you know if the form the formula worked the first time, and for me, just like Top Gun Maverick, it worked again. <laughs>
0: Well, it's I think just like Top Gun Maverick, it takes what, what was already established, like you said, yeah. and then builds on it. So the first movie clearly had consequence. Like he's he is now tight with Bogomil. Like they hang out and go fishing and stuff. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He calls him every week. He's like oh, I'll call you next week. You know he's got friends now in in Beverly Hills. He um, the the people in the people in his own precinct are like oh you know he's got a reputation now. Because of what he did over there, he's doing undercover work more regularly. Whereas in the first one, I think uh, Inspector Todd was like, "Oh, what, what did I tell you about doing undercover work?" Is like, you know, get back, you know, get back on the streets or whatever. Now he sort of uh, has a little more status even in his own in his own department because of what he accomplished in the first movie, and uh, having Bogomil be the one who gets shot is also a lot more effective than his friend Mikey, who we met for two minutes. And then we're like, Oh, okay. He's going to go investigate that guy. We just met just got killed. Uh, You know, because we're, we're emotionally connected to that character and it deepens the, the the bond he has with, with Billy and Taggart. And I think we see those relationships kind of evolve in in a fun and interesting way to the point that at the end of this movie, he, Axel's like, man, you guys are getting more and more like me all the time. Like he's rubbing off (laughs) on them. And I think that's, That's sort of a a fun dynamic that uh, between the three of them.
1: Also, for me, the second one becomes more of a buddy cop film or like a buddy film. And I I like buddy films and buddy cop films, whereas the first one, it's him versus Beverly Hills Police Department, right? Like Taggart and and Rosewood are trying to like keep him under control. But this one, they're joining forces, albeit, you know, reluctantly at first. Um, But I think... The, the plot was actually supposed to be something different. And so I think that's something to take into account. They actually wanted the sequel to be set in London and Paris. And one early draft had him teaming up with Scotland Yard um, to, to solve a case. And Eddie said that he didn't, uh, he was reluctant to film outside the US. So they had to rewrite the script. So, I mean, this the Beverly Hills Cop 2 was originally going to you no, know, go international and it might have been a different there might have been different beats, but because Murphy didn't want to film outside the US, they had to keep it within the confines of of Beverly Hills again.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, I I prefer that they did what they did because even though it does have that air of like, oh, I'm back in Beverly Hills again. And we get, you know, the other mont- montage of him driving down Beverly Hills, you know, and seeing all the, all, the, all the ladies and all the fancy restaurants and all the people walking their dogs or whatever. Uh, first of all, the men in black taught us never go international. Uh, that, that didn't work. <laughs> and secondly, Scotland Yard, that's, that sounds like somebody dusted that script off 20 years later and made Shanghai Nights. Uh, instead, Oh, so, uh,
1: <laughs> maybe. Maybe. Oh, my gosh. I forgot about that movie entirely. I saw that movie, but I don't remember yep. it now.
0: <laughs> it's fun. It's got its moments. Um, I've, I've rewatched it recently. Again, I, action comedies were a huge thing in my household, uh, which is why like all of the tr- franchises that we mentioned were on regular rotation. So, uh, you know, I, I like that they they did what they did. If, if they were going to do it, I feel like at least they did. Further developed the uh, you know the, the the dynamic with him and all the other characters to the point that Paul Reiser is in this movie is back from the first one and even he's like Axel let me work undercover with you let me like cover you know he's uh, he's the Cameron to uh, Axel's Ferris Bueller doing the doing the phone calls for him and everything um, so I I love that everyone is sort of allied with Axel in this film and also it's funny too because I was it was thinking in this movie it feels like in a few places that it's sort of trying to be like, well, what if Axel Foley was in a James Bond movie? Because we get the very beginning, he's suiting up. He goes to the bar and he orders an unconventional drink. For him, it's Coke with no ice, not a martini <laughs> shake and not stirred. To the point right. where later on, one of the characters, Gilbert Gottfried characters is like, oh, I get it. It's a James Bond thing. I'm like, yes, that's what I've been saying, Gilbert. Um, it's, it, I think it, it does try and toy with that a little bit. And this would have been the era that Timothy Dalton was 007. So it was already kind of going edgier and you know, a little darker, a little more in your face with the uh, with the action and violence. So I don't know, that's just something that struck me upon this rewatch that like his uh, you know, his his jacket, that his iconic jacket in the in these movies is is his uh you know, his tuxedo, I guess.
1: Yeah, and I, I'm so glad you mentioned Paul Reiser, because I was thinking that he was also one of my favorite parts of Beverly Hills Cop 2. And I'm glad that he was used a lot. And just, I I loved that dynamic and, and how kind of <laughs> like dysfunctional Paul Reiser is as, you know, as a cop. Um, but this was, this was uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, right? Like, th- like this whole series is Bruckheimer this produced.
0: Was, yeah. It's like the beginning, I think of, of Bruckheimer and uh, you know, the late Don Simpson, their sort of reign of, of uh, you know, bombastic testosterone-driven uh, action films, kind of, I think it really started with these movies.
1: Okay, because I was definitely getting, like, Bad Boys vibes from... Absolutely. ...from, like, the from Beverly Hills Cop 2, specifically when he does team up with, you know, Taggart and Rosewood. So it definitely feels like Bad Boys owes a lot to... Eddie Murphy I would think because uh, that's Bruckheimer as well um so there are a lot and did Tony Scott I should know this who directed did Tony Scott direct the first bad boys
0: no Michael did Bay did the, the the first two bad boys
1: oh he yeah. oh Bay did direct the okay 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 I thought for some reason Tony Scott was somehow involved in the bad boys franchise well, Bruckheimer
0: was involved I believe in those Bruckheimer right so, there, right.
1: That, so that's yeah the
0: connective tissue yeah
1: I think Bad Boys is sort of an attempt to, like, re, re, what, not rehash, but, like, reinvent, um, like, a cross between 48 Hours and Beverly Hills Cop. Yeah. Um, because you've got, you know, at least there are two people who get along, unlike 48 Hours, you know, but they are two, they are two cops with unorthodox methods in Miami, which is, like, the Beverly Hills of the <laughs> East, right? <Yep. laughs> So um, it's it's kind of funny to see like there are definite like a seed. A seed has been dropped. And then Bruckheimer, I don't know, 10 years later does it again, maybe.
0: <laughs> and then around this time on TV, Miami Vice was on. Which, oh, gosh. <laughs> again, sort of glamorized that as a setting for these sort of crime thrillers. Uh, yeah. To the point that after Beverly Hills Cop, they were apparently Paramount was interested in a TV series and Eddie Murphy was like, yeah, no, I'm not doing a TV show, which is uh, something that would come back in the 2010s when they, again, CBS tried to do a Beverly Hills cop show uh, with Brandon T Jackson as Axel's son. And then Eddie was like, but I'm not going to be in it every week. I'll start it off. And then I'm peacing out. And that that just didn't happen. So now we're getting the fourth film, Uh, but it's easy to imagine Beverly Hills cop, the TV series being, Kind of a Miami Vice uh, influenced property.
1: Yeah, that's really. I'm I'm curious, like where the, because Ferris Bueller did a spinoff into a TV show. There was a lot of like spin spinoff shows from the 80s. Um, I feel the like like were, like, were popular a, movies. The 80s wild were weird. Time. Time.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it was so weird. There was people don't even know there was. I think animated series for like Rambo and. RoboCop yes. movies that kids should not be watching right uh, this this film and i i noticed this when i was you know preparing for this episode this one won the favorite movie and favorite movie actor awards at the second annual nickelodeon kids choice awards
1: i saw that um, too and i was why like
0: are kids I, watching this
1: <laughs> i mean i guess it's just this, language i mean there's this not, as, but... a,
0: as a kid who probably watched this but still <laughs>
1: I know. I saw that too. I saw, like, I saw the awards and some of the music, you know, had was nominated for an Oscar and then others, another song by George Michael was was won a Razzie, you know? So I was like looking at the awards and then I saw kids choice awards. And my first thought was there were kids choice awards back in 1987. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then my second thought was Beverly Hills Cop 2. That's rated R. How did that make it onto a kids network?
0: (laughs) It's a weird like a time. The, the '80s. It was anything goes, apparently. Um, but no, yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, also that's the era where Freddy Krueger was like a, a kid's favorite character. Like Freddy Krueger was popular with children. Again, that's not true. A, yeah, not a character <laughs> that kids should be familiar with. Uh, much more so than Axel Folio would say. But also, I mean, we're talking about the, you know we're mentioning the music shakedown in, in this movie. Obviously nominated mm-hmm. for an Oscar and I think a golden globe as well which a great song it's no it's no the heat is on it's no neutron dance but you know I'll take what I can get these soundtracks are pretty fun generally yes. and, and there's there's something so infectious about 1980s like pop and R&B uh the Pointer Sisters anything by the Pointer Sisters or like Billy Ocean like I grew up with so much of that kind of music and it's just still so fun
1: yeah these soundtracks are are really great I definitely made note of that. Same with 48 Hours. There's a great yeah. soundtrack for 48 Hours and then even another 48 Hours and stuff like, like, blues music. Like, it's, it's, man, it, the soundtracks of the 80s, Footloose, Top Gun, like, killing it. Just yep. absolutely killing it. And I feel like that's something we don't have a lot of these days. Like, we've got, you know, of course there's scores, you know, like Hans Zimmer and, like, we've got famous, like, composers, but there's not, I can't recall a movie that's like consistently got a great soundtrack that happens often. Anyway, there are movies out there obviously, but man, the eighties just with the music was, and, and just so phenomenal.
0: Yeah. It's, I feel like that's a trend that really sort of petered out in the nineties, like the late nineties, early two thousands that now if you get a soundtrack and it has pop songs on it, it's always music from and inspired by the motion picture where it's, one song that's in the credits and the rest have nothing to do. It's just a marketing thing. Yeah, and I, you know, I fell for that yeah. a lot in the 90s and 2000s as well. But like even that's not around anymore that much.
1: No, I mean, early 2000s maybe because you had, at least you had rom-coms. So like you had She's All That, the soundtrack and stuff. And so if that was your type of jam, like that type of music, then then it worked. But yeah, I mean, nothing beats like 80s soundtracks. And I don't know if it's because so many of these movie studios also owned record labels at the time. So it was a way to like synergize and cross promote, you know, (laughs) their hot music artists into this hot new film. Like uh, Warner Brothers made Tim Burton put a Prince song, like had Prince do the music for Batman, uh, which, you know, are not two things that you think would go together, you know. (laughs) Uh, but he was ordered by the studio to include Prince. So I mean, who who knows?
0: And <laughs> hey, we got bat dance out of it. So I think it worked yeah. out for everyone.
1: Yeah, abs- absolutely. Um, we're all better off f- for studio interference uh in that instance, I think. But it is it is interesting um to to learn about like the history of soundtracks or like why why they were so good <laughs> in the eighties. <'80s>.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, one thing that's fun about this movie too, is that the character of Billy Rosewood is develops so much more from the first one. First one, he's just like, you know, sort of green by the book cop. He's, you know, partnered with tagger. There's a little bit of the, the bad boys dynamic and that they bicker kind of like an old married couple. In fact, I think that's what director Martin Brest kind of gave them as guidance for their, you know, for their performances in that first film. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, Billy is revealed to have uh, all all these plants. He's got a pet turtle. He's got like an insane gun fetish thing going on. Yeah. He's a fellow. He's a fellow Stallone enthusiast, Lauren. Yep. Uh, yeah, so that explains. I think we just cracked why you like this movie so much. Uh, Stallone yeah. is referenced uh, in posters. Rambo gets a name drop. His wife at the time, Brigitte Nielsen, like we yeah. said, is in this movie as one of the main villains. Uh, what, is your, what are your thoughts on the stallone of Beverly Hills Cop 2? And also, would you, what would that even have looked like? Because obviously, famously, he was supposed to do the original film back in the day, which I would imagine would just be like, like every other action movie. It wouldn't have the comedy element as, at all. So what are, your, what are your thoughts on everything Stallone in this franchise? Because it's kind of inextricably tied to him.
1: I mean, I think, I think the Beverly Hills Cop 2 Stallone references are in good fun. And I think it's partly because Nielsen is in the film also, uh, which probably was an interesting conversation, like over, over breakfast or something that she was going to be in Beverly Hills Cop 2. Yeah. Um, so I know Stallone rewrote the script for Beverly Hills Cop when he was first attached to be in it. And he wanted to crank up the action and tone down the comedy Um, and he even changed the name. He like, it was Axel Foley, like in the script, it was always Axel Foley, but he changed it to Axel Cabretti, which I somehow find even funnier than Marion Cabretti in Cobra. (laughs) I don't know why. Um, but I think we're all better for it because not only did we still get Beverly Hills Cop, we also got Cobra, which is one of the most like badass movies of the eighties, in my opinion. Right. Um, also has Nielsen in it uh for obvious reasons um but i did i mean you're not wrong to say that that definitely helped my enjoyment of beverly hills cop 2 that they were definitely leaning into uh the ramboness of rosewood who always seems like this this like polite kind of like awkward or borderline incompetent.
0: Seems, seems like Judge Reinhold. Yeah,
1: he's got like a cushy Beverly Hills, like how much, you know, there's not a lot of crime in Beverly Hills, you know, so it's like he's got this cushy job and he's kind of, he's kind of dense, you know, and he's lovable. And then all of a sudden you find out that <laughs> he's, he's got a secret an badass. Yeah, that he's an arsenal. Uh, he has an arsenal in his apartment and is just... Uh, yeah, and then, of course, um, his his character development gets a little bigger in, you know, Beverly Hills Cop 3 with with what he gets, like, promoted to uh, right. within the division. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I think uh, we're better off. We get Beverly Hills Cop, so we get the action and the comedy, and we get Cobra, which, to me, is a very funny film. I don't know if you've recently, like, how long it's been since you've seen Cobra or if you've seen it, but... That movie is funny Um, and and it's just Stallone does a different type of comedy than Murphy, than Jim Carrey, than, than all the others. And he thinks he doesn't do comedy, but Rhinestone is my favorite Stallone movie of all time. So that movie is hilarious in my opinion. And so to me, the type of humor Stallone does is very special. It's very niche and it's more, it's more straight man humor. Like that's mm-hmm. why Tango in Cash, in my opinion, works so well is yeah. you've got like Kurt Russell's cranking it up to eleven as basically Jack Burton, you know, <laughs> and then you so um I I'm happy that we have both films and I'm happy that Stallone dropped out of Beverly Hills Cop.
0: <laughs> I, I first of all, I think it it says a lot about how that script for Beverly Hills Cop is made or broken by who they get in the lead like this is it's 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 impossible to imagine now anyone but Eddie Murphy in that role because it was it 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 felt like it's sort of a on paper kind of a blank slate and it is what you bring to it and so I don't know if Stallone would have been the right fit I agree with you that Eddie Murphy it's just it was the right vehicle for him for the right person at the right time it's like it's lightning in a bottle I think and that's his his entire career depended on that movie landed in the way it did.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And I think just the idea of like a black man from Detroit being a cop in Beverly Hills is 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 funnier and works better than like a straight-laced, you know, Italian guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, in, in, in Beverly Hills uh, where it would still be, he would still stick out, but also he could blend in if he had to. And obviously there's a lot of like, uh, they explore, you know, like racial, like race roles in Beverly Hills and stuff with yeah. Axel. So, like, I think, I, 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 I think we're all, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It was lightning in a bottle, and it was just all of these, this perfect confluence of events, and Murphy just took the role and made it, made it his own. He just ran with it,
0: and he makes him even more of an underdog. And it's, if anything, Axel is such a smart character that. If anything, he weaponizes the fact that people see this, like, because in the first one he's like twenty-three years old Eddie Murphy when that movie comes out, which is insane oh my to me. Gosh, that is uh, insane to me. Is that <laughs> he? They, people see this young black man, and they're just like, "Oh, this guy's not a threat" or whatever. And he, if anything, uses that to his advantage uh, to to get the upper hand. And having him in, in dealing with these sort of upper crust white people, predominantly, you know, <laughs> yeah. like I was saying about the James Bond thing. All his villains, at least in these first two, are the Europeans with ac- white guys with accents and suits, and that, that's kind of Victor Maitland and uh, and Maxwell Dent are both sort of that's their vibe. They would be very easily transposed into a Bond movie, uh, and so having Eddie Murphy go up against them, I think, is really is really fun and adds and makes it feel like he's invading someone else's movie because in a way with that first one, he kind of was like, it wasn't supposed to be at an Eddie Murphy vehicle. And then he came in and now it's an Eddie Murphy vehicle. And Eddie Murphy's in the middle of this more serious minded action franchise that evolves as it goes along to sort of uh, mold more to, to his sensibility. And I think you see it in this movie uh, much more than the first one. And now it's going to be my turn to shame myself. I've actually never seen Cobra. Uh, oh my I love Tango and Cash. I watched it. My wife had never seen it. I we watched it like a couple weeks ago. Still fun. Still holds up. Like you were saying, Kurt Russell very much in the Jack Burton zone. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and Stallone doing what I imagine he would have done in Beverly Hills Cop. That sort of straight laced kind of you know very by the book cop who I don't know. I don't know how that would have worked in this movie. And uh, Demolition Man, another huge Stallone for me. So maybe oh, yeah. I, at some point I might. Maybe we need to get you on on my other show close watch and we you can bring cobra to the table over there and we can we can dig into that and i can finally clear that uh, that blind spot
1: oh you you need to watch it regardless whether you do an episode on it or not like if you love 80s you know action comedies and stuff with like really great soundtracks then you you just you just need to watch cobra just for your own personal enjoyment
0: <laughs> yeah definitely one I need to, I need to catch up on, especially like we said, after watching this movie and the first one and, being, and realizing that Cobra is sort of an unofficial uh, connection. has you know, it's a connected film in a way that I think Kurt Russ, speaking of Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell's soldier is sort of uh, t- tied to like Blade Runner or something. it was was one of those at one point. Um, we were talking about the 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 supporting cast, and I wanted to kind of run through a few things, and then we'll start we'll start uh, winding down. I, I love the fact that um, we get not only Chris Rock but also Gilbert Gottfried in here. So we get uh, Eddie Murphy sort of continuing the tradition in the first one. Damon Wayans has a really small role as the guy that that gives him the bananas to put up the tailpipe of the car. Yes, uh, and and so I like the little the little hat tips to his his fellow standups. I think Gilbert Gottfried was even on SNL the same year that uh, one of the years that Eddie Murphy was as well.
1: Oh, that would that would make sense then. Yeah, that would definitely make sense.
0: Um, um, I love that they, uh, John Ashton as Taggart here, I, I think you, you feel his absence so much in the third movie, which people will hear me get to in the next episode, but he's not in, that's the only of these, you know, he's in the first one, he's in the second one, he's coming back for the fourth one. I don't know in what capacity, but he will be in it at, at least briefly. Uh, he's not in the third one, and I think you feel that absence so much because- upon this rewatch you see how much of a foil that character is for axel uh you, you take him away all the other people are unabashedly wanting to help axel and Taggart's like yeah i want to help you but also like you know he, he's he's a little he's the uh the murtaugh of the situation he's like i'm too old for this shit <laughs> um, <laughs> yes so he's like oh i got two kids and it's like oh we're getting he even says to billy at one point he's like we're getting we're getting caught up with axel again like we're, we're falling back into this the same cycle uh, so I, I, I just want to shout out John Ashton for, for uh, his contribution to this franchise. Cause I think it is sort of undervalued.
1: Yeah. I, I agree with you. Um, Paul Guilfoyle is always nice to see when he shows up and Dean Stockwell uh, yeah. was in this, which also I didn't know that till like I saw his name in the credits and I was like, that guy's in everything. <laughs> I feel like. Um, and isn't, isn't Inspector Todd, wasn't he, wasn't it sort of like an Arlie Ermi situation where Hill was actually like the police commissioner of Chicago or something? Like I think he was actually a cop.
0: In oh, he might have been. Real life. That would that would make sense. But that would surprise ma- Maybe not. not. Surprise me.
1: Maybe not. I, he might have I... only been an actor, but I thought he was discovered because he was actually like a former yeah, he was a detective and later became chief of police for the Detroit Police Department.
0: <laughs> there you go. So they're just like, yeah. we want an authentic Detroit cop, and they're like, "There's a Detroit cop who wants to be in this movie. Let's put him in there." And I would have never known I, I would have never thought he wasn't just an actor by trade because he's so great in this movie. It's the kind of, it's the kind of thing that like um, uh, Last Action Hero, which is a movie I love, and I know people oh, yes. are very divided on. Uh, <laughs> that it's it's the trope of like the, the the like hot-headed chief that's like always ripping and you know ripping into uh the hero it's 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 a trope but it, it works and i think he makes that character still so much fun where he's giving he's giving axel the business but you're like oh but more of this guy like he's, he's an antagonist yeah. but i i, like I enjoy guy. seeing them kind of play off each other
1: yeah i do too so i think i think it's just it's just great um but yeah, I remember like learning that he was like a cop or something first, and then he went on to become a Detroit councilman after the Beverly Hills Cop movies. Um, so he, yeah. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think I think uh, we we can't forget about about Todd there.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, and then I, I love at the end of this film. I, I, I was initially sort of bummed because it feels like well. Brigitte Nielsen's character gets that like I said the sort of the the death that's very reminiscent of the first movie at the end with Bogomil taking out Victor Maitland but it's also that the the main villain Dent is is taken out just kind of unceremoniously and that and I was a little bummed by that but then in the next moment the mayor is firing Chief Lutz and I'm like I get it now Chief Lutz is the real villain of this movie like there's a real anti-bureaucracy uh, vibe to this film that I think fits completely in line with Eddie Murphy's sort of comic sensibility, but also Axel Foley's uh, place in, in you know, in the world of these movies and sort of shaking up the status quo.
1: Yeah, no, that's a really, that's a really good point. And I remember I rewatched this movie when I knew we were doing this. And I, I kept thinking like, did I miss like Jurgen Prochnow in this, like the first time? Like what? And then I was like, no, he's barely in it. <laughs> Which which is sort of weird because you think there is going to be like this great, like show showdown, you know, and there's not. It's very anticlimactic, and so I I agree with you there. That part, I, I that part I didn't love with kind of how how easy it gets like wrapped up with a bow in a right. way. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> that's funny.
0: <laughs> chief Lutz gets fired and Bogomil gets promoted to chief of police, and all is right with the world until Beverly Hills Cop Three. Comes along in 1994, but that's, that's a conversation for another time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So is there anything else before we start winding down that you wanted to mention about Beverly Hills Cop 2? The only food movie in this franchise also that does not have Bronson Pinchot in there, which is an, again, I miss him because I, I think that character is fun to play off of Eddie Murphy as well.
1: Yeah. I was about to mention that he was also busy uh, filming Perfect Strangers, which is great. Um so both he and 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 <laughs> Ronnie uh Cox had had prior filming commitments. Um no, I guess the only thing I was going to say was domestically Beverly Hills Cop 2 became the third biggest hit uh of 1987 and it was topped only by Fatal Attraction, which to me makes sense. And yeah. Three Men and a Baby, which I love and grew up watching, but the fact that Three Men and a Baby was like this amazing, almost, you know, ridiculous blockbuster hit is just hilarious to me.
0: <laughs> Doesn't it kind of make you nostalgic though for the for a time when random movies from every genre had a chance at making that kind of money where now every, every year you look at the, like the box office top 10 and it's all sequels or reboots or superheroes or transformers or or whatever and it's like back in the day like oh kramer versus kramer was the highest grossing movie (laughs) that year people went to see oh americans you know flocked to see dustin Hoffman and meryl streep fight over their kids i'm like you know that i i think that's it's such it, it speaks to how different a time it is now in the industry that fatal attraction three men and a baby are neck and neck and actually beating out beverly hills cop 2 which is, you know, the 80s, 1987 equivalent of, you know, nowadays like uh, you know, the next the next the new Marvel movie or or whatever.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, the week, you know those like memes that are like find the number one movie for the week you were born, yeah. or whatever, you know? Police Academy like four or something <laughs> was the number one. Box office hit the week I was born and it stayed number 1 for like a week or two. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's so the That's 80s crazy. were a, were a, were, a, were a, a unique time um all their own.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> which is why it's so fun to go back and revisit these movies now and be like, "Oh man, the 80s. You were special." Yeah. Um Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of which, what would you say in your opinion, what is the the legacy of the Beverly Hills cop franchise? What is what does it contribute to cinema uh and this and the landscape thereof?
1: I mean, I think we've hit on a lot of points about future films, especially, you know, ones where Bruckheimer's attached, like, you know, bad boys. Um, so I think I think the fact that there's going to be a fourth one after all this time is a testament to how much. These characters are loved because every like, yes, we love Axel Foley, but we also do love Rosewood, you know. And like, I I think I'm I'm nervous because I did not enjoy coming uh, to America the sequel. I did not right. enjoy like the sequel coming
0: numeral two America numeral
1: two yeah. America. Yeah, coming number two America. I did not. I didn't. I I thought it was less than fine. Yep. I'm a little nervous. Um that maybe it's been too long but also Eddie Murphy is just he's poised for a renaissance I think um and and I would love to see the action comedy with hopefully a killer soundtrack like I would love to see a lot of those same things um in in this sequel and so I think the fact that they're making a sequel after all this time is sure uh, uh you could argue a criticism of hollywood not having new ideas right but i think of all the different kind of franchises they could go for um beverly hills cop is is an interesting one and maybe one that that people didn't expect especially after the third one <laughs> which mm-hmm. i know you're going to talk about later <laughs> um but yeah i think i think it influenced buddy cop movies and and action comedies um through the 90s and 2000s especially for like Bruckheimer and Bay um yeah
0: yeah i think it it basically defined the next 20 30 years of of of, of uh, action cinema yeah for sure and i to your point about the them making a sequel so late yeah, I, I'm also worried because I, what <laughs> sequel to, especially a comedy that has come 10, 15, 20, and you know, 25, 30 years later has actually been worth it? Uh, I can't off the, off the top of my head think of any, really. Uh, I, I think that they are capable of doing it, but it's also in a post-Jump Street world where the conventions have been torn apart like time and again. And we've all seen these things a million times. Yeah, you you really have to have a a somewhat of a fresh angle to make it worthwhile. I in doing in getting ready to do these episodes, I I actually put up a poll and I and I put you know, I gave uh, listeners options of what which action comedy franchise I would cover. So I had this and I had Bad Boys and Rush Hour and Charlie's Angels and this one and Rush Hour was second. So in that collection, the only film I hadn't seen was Bad Boys for Life. So I went back and and caught up with that. And that movie, I think, is possibly my favorite in the franchise, and it's coming twenty something years after the original film. So I guess it's possible, but it, it's 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 I'm gonna lower. I'm gonna go in with lowered expectations, especially like you said, after coming to America, which the title is already a bad sign for that film. So I know Beverly Hills cop Axel Foley is is, I guess, sure, whatever. Um, if you don't want to throw a number on it because then, the kids will uh, will just, ah, uh, a fourth. I'm not going to bother with that. It's better than them just calling it Beverly Hills Cop and pulling a Scream because that that drives me crazy.
1: Oh, that's true. They could have just called it that and then either recast it or just done like, yeah, like they did with Scream or at least Top Gun had Maverick after it. So it looks right. like they might be. they will
0: <laughs> be like Die Hard, colon, John McClane. I'm like, John sure. Mc- we all know who it is, but whatever. Um but yes. Uh so what is your ranking for this this uh franchise? Does this have enough stallone to put it at the top of the list? What is your what is your ranking of these three films? <laughs>
1: um, I still have to go with the first one. Honestly, just by a hair, to be honest. Right. I really I, I thought kind of like the love story and the first one kind of like weighed it down a little bit. Um, but uh it's gotta be the the original and then this one. And then the third one. So a literal, like literally in order.
0: Right. I would be shocked if either of my other guests say anything other than that. Yeah. Uh, but but we'll we'll see. Yeah, you never know. People come in with with wild takes all the time on film Twitter and beyond. So thank you, Lauren, so much for coming on to talk about Beverly Hills Cop 2. This was so much fun. Tell people where they can find you and your show on social media.
1: Yeah, awesome. Um, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at That Movie Is Fine, and you can find the podcast on uh, Instagram at That Movie Is Fine Podcast and on Twitter at TMIF Pod.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. This was a blast. We'll definitely, we'll definitely do something again soon.
1: Yes, and go watch Cobra.
0: <laughs> I know, I know. I'll get back to you on that. I hope it's streaming somewhere. <laughs> Otherwise, know. you know, I might have to blind buy it on, on Amazon or something. It's worth um. it. Big thanks to Lauren Knight from This Movie is Fine for joining us to discuss 1987's Beverly Hills Cop 2. It was a really interesting watch catching up with us now and seeing how how this sequel really kind of doubled down on a lot of, uh, a lot of what made the first movie so impactful. I think it's generally well regarded, this one. So, uh, you know, chances are you've seen it, but probably not lately. So definitely check it out. I think it, it, it's, as Lauren and I got into, I think it's uh, it's an interesting watch. And it's definitely fun enough. And uh, even if it doesn't quite have the sort of totemic, uh, you know, cultural impact that the first film had. So... Let me know your thoughts on Beverly Hills Cop 2. You can find me on Twitter so far, at Crooked Table. Same handle on Instagram, via email at robert at crickettable.com, Also on Tumblr and Hive and a bunch of other places. Let me know if, if we're not there. I'll we'll make, us, we'll make ourselves available. We'll come back next week with Beverly Hills Cop 3, which is uh, going to be a much different conversation than these two have been. But for now, that's a wrap on another Cricket Table production. Catch you at the next stop, everybody. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. <laughs>